Let me pray. I'm going to read uh, chapter 3, verse 17, then we'll look look at God's word together. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, that's our prayer this evening, that all we do and say in all of life would be to the praise of your glory. We pray it for life in the home. We pray it for life at work. And we pray it for our witness in the world. We pray that that fullness that we have in Christ would spill out into all that we do and say. And we pray it for your glory. Amen. Well, from the beginning of uh, chapter 3 through to the end of this evening's reading in chapter 4, verse 6, what we have is a description of the normal Christian life. Paul lays out before us what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. You see, our faith isn't something we keep hidden away, locked away in a box. It is to be the foundation for all of life. And in chapter 3, after helping us understand the, the fullness, the new life of Christ that we have, In chapter 1 and 2, Paul helps us see what it looks like for that fullness in Christ, that new life to spill out into every avenue of life. You're a Christian at church, you're a Christian in the home, you're a Christian at work, you're a Christian at school, you're a Christian in all of life. And the power to live the Christian life in every single one of these contexts is Christ in you. Do you remember those words we looked at back in chapter 1, verse 27? To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you want to be a flourishing church member for Jesus, if you want to be a flourishing husband, wife, parent, Child for Jesus. If you want to be a flourishing employer or employee for Jesus, then you need to remember where the power lies. And the power does not lie in you. It is Christ in you. The fullness of Christ in the frailty of this human frame. Christ in you, the hope of glory and the power for Christian living in all the different contexts of life. And this evening, we're going to see how that that fullness in Christ plays itself out in three different contexts. Firstly, in the home. How does or how should our faith in Jesus impact life in the home? We'll have a look again at chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The latest statistics concerning family breakdown in the UK are pretty frightening. Apparently 35% of teenagers now studying for their GCSEs will do so with only one parent at home. Last year, 22,000 young offenders were sentenced to some sort of time in prison. An estimated 1.9 million adults experienced some form of domestic abuse in the home last year. And get this, 
Every single day, every single 24-hour period, 90 children are removed from their home context because they they have not got the care that they need and they're taken into the social care system. So much brokenness, so much pain. Yet here's the sad reality. Most people are looking for the solution in the wrong place. They're looking to, to, to new laws and legislation and education. And it's not that these things can't help. They do, but they're not the answer. You see, the answer is, in fact, before us in these verses. is if everybody thought about, meditated upon, and lived out the instructions in these few verses, we would see those problems eradicated overnight. Because what we have before us is God's precious blueprint for family life. And it begins with the marriage relationship in verse 18. Have a look down. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if you've been at a wedding service, when the word submit is used, either in the vows or in, in, in the preach, you can almost hear the intake of breath. Well, at our wedding ceremony, Han chose to use the word submit in her vows to me, based on the principle that we find here in Colossians chapter 3, that we find again in Ephesians chapter 5, and we see again in 1 Peter chapter 3. You see, submission is a beautiful concept that has nothing to do with value or superiority. In fact, we find a relational order within the Godhead, within the Trinity itself, as the Son willingly and gladly submits to the design of his Father. And by the way, it's got nothing to do with culture or context either. This isn't about where you grow up or when you grow up. It doesn't matter whether you were born in 1st century Colossae or 21st century Crendon. This is about doing what is fitting in the Lord. Can you see that verse 18? We're not called to fit in with society. We're called to fit in with the word of God. And look at what the word of God says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so if you're a wife here this evening, you need to... Take that verse away. You need to meditate upon it. You need to think about it. You need to pray into it as you work out what that should look like in the context of your home. But of course, there's a word for the husbands as well in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You'll find the parallel verses in Ephesians chapter 5 where husbands are called to love their wives in the same way that Christ has loved his bride, the church, which is, of course, an impossible bar to attain to, to love as Christ has loved his church. But with Christ in you, with the fullness of Christ in you, it is something we should long for and pray for, and by the grace of God, Work towards. So let me suggest three applications for you if you're a husband here this evening. Firstly, it means being sacrificial. Means being willing to lay aside as Christ laid aside for his bride, the church, your, your own dreams at times, your, your goals and your pursuits for the sake of your wife as Christ willingly laid down all for the sake of his bride. Secondly, it means being concerned with their greatest good, which is what? It's them becoming more like 
the Lord Jesus. Have a look at Ephesians 5. It's on the screen there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ gave himself up for his bride, the church. He laid his life down that his church would be pure blameless, without wrinkle, spot or blemish and radiant as they display the character and the qualities of Jesus Christ. Husbands, if you're a husband here this evening, this is your special privilege to lead and to pray to that end that you would present your wife holy in the sight of God. And so husbands, let me ask you the question, are you leading and are you praying to that end? Because if we're not, maybe we've forgotten those promises that we made when we stood before God and faced our wife. And thirdly, it means being gentle, both with our actions and with our words. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Easy to say, but as Dick Lucas notes in his commentary, how horrifyingly easy it is to destroy human relationships, even our nearest and dearest, because we lack gentleness and grace. And we are not kind, but we are harsh with those whom the Lord has given to us. Healthy homes are without doubt built on healthy marriages, where men and women fulfill those glorious God-given roles that he's given to us. But as we read on, you can see that there's another dimension, isn't there, to life in the home that we find in verse 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. You may have heard it say that we should uh, invest in the younger generations because they are the church of tomorrow, which is, of course, incredibly bad theology, because they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. And that is why Paul addresses them directly in verse 20 as part of the body of Christ's children. Eliza, had a law. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And notice it doesn't say obey your parents, for this pleases your parents. As much as your parents like to be pleased, see them nodding away, we love to be pleased, but that's not what it says. That is not your ultimate motive. Have a look again, verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. Obedience to your parents pleases the Lord because this is God's good design for you. And so if you're a child still living in the home under the the supervision and care of your parents, let me ask you a simple question. Do you realize that when you fail to obey your parents, you're actually failing to obey God? Because God in his kindness has put you in the home you're in under the loving, generous, gracious authority and instruction of your parents in order that you might become more like the Lord Jesus. And you know what? They don't always get it right. Of course, they don't always get it right. We're all sinners. 
redeemed by grace. But please remember that God has put you in the home he's put you in, in order that you might live in that context under the loving authority of your parents as they nurture that faith within you. And so it's no surprise then, is it, that Paul goes on to address the parents, or specifically the the fathers, in verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Or as it says in the ESV version, fathers, do not provoke your children. Now, I doubt we set out with that intention uh, to provoke our children, but sadly, uh, we can be pretty good at it. Alistair Begin his little book here, Parenting God's Way, which we put in the parenting pack that went out earlier this year, speaks about eight ways, and it's not there's a list of eight, but he speaks about eight ways in which parents can easily provoke uh, their children. Let me mention just two for the sake of time. Firstly, unhelpful comparisons. It's easy to provoke our children by playing them off against each other. I, why don't you tidy your room like your sister? Why don't you ever listen like your brother. Now, of course, that sort of parenting isn't going to encourage our children in godliness. It's going to, it's going to provoke some sort of rivalry between our children and between them and you. Secondly, inconsistent discipline. One day a child under your authority and instruction does something and you come down hard and grounded for a week. A couple of weeks later, they're almost guilty of exactly the same thing, and it's, it's just brushed over almost as if it never happened. You see, inconsistent discipline breeds confusion in our children. They need clear boundaries, and they need loving discipline within those boundaries. Fathers, do not provoke your children in this way, or they'll become discouraged. And of course, no doubt, if you're a father here in the room, you can think of many other ways in which you have failed to live by the instruction there in Colossians chapter 3. And I do recommend this to you if you haven't read it, uh, a really helpful read. And we have got a few copies uh, to pick up if people want them. And as we conclude this, this first section, as we think about our fullness in Christ spilling out into life in the home, I want to uh, leave you with a a quote from a guy called Richard Baxter, who was a, a vicar, a minister in the 17th century. And it was a huge part of his ministry, actually, to visit house to house. He went home to home and he spoke to, to parents and to families seeking to nurture this, this life instructed by Paul here. And this is what he said, the life of religion and the welfare and glory of both the church and the state depend much on family, government and duty. If we, if we suffer the neglect of this, we shall undo all. Fairly prophetic words, I think, as we look at the state of the family and the state of society today. In short, how we order life in the home, in the unit of the family, in the home, will have massive implications for what happens outside the home in society, both in terms of marriage, how we do marriage, and how we parent those in our care. Firstly, then, living for Jesus in the home. Secondly, Living for Jesus at work. Have a look at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. 
Now, if you read on in the, in the verses that follow, you see that more is spoken to slaves than, than masters, maybe a reflection of the demographic of the church in Colossae, i.e. there were more slaves than masters, or in our language, more employees than employers. But before we look at what Paul does say to the slaves, it's maybe more revealing what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't encourage the slaves to rebel against the broken system that they were within, but to obey. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that slavery is right. There are times when Christian believers should should challenge immoral practice and behavior and broken, fallen systems in the public square of this world. In fact, as you look back through history... Most of the moral reforms that have taken place in this country are a direct result of Christians standing up for what is right and letting God's word speak into every department of life. But that's not Paul's priority here. Paul's not talking about public debate, but personal holiness. His main focus is to encourage these Christians to keep living for Jesus, even in the context of a broken system. Because the best way to reform a broken system, indeed a broken world, is to gently live God's way within it. And God's way is made clear in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you. That's a challenge, isn't it, as we think about how this applies to 21st century work today to obey your masters, your boss in everything, not only when they're watching, not only when their eye is on you, not only to, to curry their favor when you're seeking the, the, the pay rise or the promotion. Instead, your primary motive is to obey with a sincerity of heart out of reverence to the Lord. We do all things firstly in the sight of our great God. As we read in verse 23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Because as Christians, we are not to be driven by the applause of man, but by the approval of God. And so tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, whatever you're doing, whether you're changing nappies at home, crunching numbers in the office or saving people from burning buildings, whatever your nine till five work is, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Why? Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Imagine hearing those words in the context of these first century slaves. Job satisfaction, zero. Pay, zero. Pension, zero. Future prospects, zero. But you know what? When their head hit the pillow at night, they could sleep with a smile on their face, knowing that they had a heavenly inheritance waiting for them. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And of course, it's no different for the employer, is it? As it is to the the employee. Have a look at chapter 4. Verse 1, masters, Paul turns his attention to those in authority. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You see, it doesn't matter what your job description is or your title is or what pay band you are on. Because on that final day, we will all give an account 
to the same master in heaven. And therefore, if you're an employer, if you've got people under you, people that you employ, then provide your employees with what is right and with what is fair. Don't squeeze them dry. Don't overload them. Don't abuse their overtime. Treat them as you would want to be treated yourself. Firstly, Paul helps understand what, what the impact of faith in the, in the home looks like. Then he speaks about living for Jesus at work. And lastly, he speaks about living for Jesus in the world. And as we come to these last few verses here, start of chapter 4, you can see that Paul's attention now turned to witness. We can see that in verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Those who are currently outside the community of faith, be wise in the way you live, act, behave alongside those who don't know Christ. In the hope by the grace of God they would come in. That they'd no longer be outsiders, but insiders. And as we think about our witness to the world, be that in, in our home, be it in the workplace, be it in, in wider world, Paul encourages us to keep three areas of our life in check. Firstly, our prayer life. Can you see that? Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. I wonder if I was to ask you to describe your prayer life with one word. I wonder what word you'd use. Inconsistent, steady, sporadic, brief. Wonder how many would use the word devoted that you see there in verse 2. It's a word that can also be translated addicted to get up in the morning and you can almost do nothing but kneel before your father and call out to him in prayer for those who are currently outside the kingdom of God. It's almost a natural instinct in the heart. It's an addiction. I can do nothing else but come before my God wholeheartedly and plead with him that he would extend his kingdom in the world today. There's two things that Paul suggests we should be praying for as we come before the Lord in devotion. Firstly, for openings or gospel opportunities, verse 3, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. I wonder if that's a prayer that you pray for each other. I wonder if it's a prayer that you pray for yourself. Or do you not actually pray it because maybe you're scared that God will answer. <laughs> and he'll give you that opportunity. And you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. And your tongue goes dry. And, and your stomach turns in knots. So you don't even pray the prayer. Lord, give me an opportunity today. If I'm a fool for Christ, I'm a fool for Christ. But grant me an opportunity to speak of my Savior to this world. Rico Tice in... His little book, Honest Evangelism, talks about crossing the pain line in our evangelism. Speaking about Jesus is hard. It's just hard. Something in us doesn't want to go there sometimes for whatever reason. But you know what? It's it's a journey. This journey to cross the pain line and speak of our Savior to this world is a journey that begins on our knees in prayer. As we pray for an opportunity and imagine every day. Praying for an opportunity and the Lord answering that prayer. Every one of us, an opportunity every day to speak of the Lord Jesus. I wonder whether we will pray that prayer 
this week for each other and for ourselves. Firstly, pray for opening. Secondly, pray for boldness and clarity. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Do you remember what happened when the early church prayed that prayer? Acts chapter 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And the impact throughout the book of Acts is clear. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Firstly, check your prayer life as we seek to be a witness to this world. Secondly, check your behavior. Verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. One of my mates, Davo, um, good friend growing up when I became a Christian converted at age 22. He was probably the friend in my close peer group that found it most difficult. The change that he saw in me, the change of life, the difference that God had, had worked in my life. And we, was, we still are. We, we're great friends. But there was something there, a tension, a new tension in that relationship that wasn't there before. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I found out why. I, I, I knew when he was growing up, his mum and dad had divorced when he was seven years old. But what I didn't know is that his mum had ran off with the vicar of the local church. So the most painful moment of Davo's childhood, age seven, was inflicted upon him by Christian, Christian leader. And so from that moment onwards, anything to do with Christianity or Jesus or the church, it just awoken an anger in Davo's heart. So that's an extreme example, but the way we live as followers of the Lord Jesus will impact how this world responds to Jesus, either positively or negatively. And so Paul says, be wise. Decisions you make, the way that you behave, the things that you do, the way that you love, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity because every moment you have in life is a God-given opportunity to show this world the glory of Jesus. Just think about every person you've rubbed shoulders with over the course of this week. It matters. It matters how you've lived alongside them this week. It matters how you live alongside them, how you behave how you use your money, how you respond to adversity, how you treat them, how you treat other people before them. Every single moment matters because every single day is a God-given opportunity to make a difference for eternity. And you see, it is only a small shift in mindset to begin to see work not just as work, but as a mission field that the Lord has placed you in at this time for a reason. And to see your family, not just as a family, but as a mission field that God has placed you in for a reason. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Firstly, keep your prayer life in check. Secondly, your behavior. And lastly, your conversation. Verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. Salt does two things, I'm told, in the world of cuisine and cooking. Number one, it preserves, and number two, it brings out the full flavor, and so should our conversation. We're not called to change the ingredients of the gospel, change the content, and somehow make it more palatable to this world. 
But our words, like salt, should bring out the full flavor and richness of the gospel. Our words, every single word that passes our lips, should preserve the wonder of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Now, that doesn't mean that every conversation you have will be about the atoning work of Jesus Christ or his wrath-satisfying, saving work at the cross when he bore your sin in your place, or his glorious resurrection to new life and his ascension into heaven. What it does mean is that every word that passes your lips should be shaped. It should be shaped by the reality of what God has done for you in his Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if we guard our prayer life, if we keep our behaviour in check, and by the grace of God, if our conversation is full of the richness of what God has done in Jesus, we will see lives changed by Jesus. We will see the outsider come in, and we will see God's kingdom established. Living for Jesus in the home, living for Jesus at work, and living for Jesus in the world. That is the picture of the normal Christian life and the power to live it it's not in you it is Christ in you the fullness of our saviour in the frailty of this frame that all we do and say may be unto his glory and praise let's pray shall we before we sing father in heaven we pray that as we've ran through these instructions at a decent pace, Lord, I pray that you give each of us time to think them through, to meditate upon them, to apply them to our own lives. And Lord, it is our great prayer that the fullness of Christ, the wonder of what he has done for us, would spill out into every department of our life. Lord, we pray for the home life, we pray for every home represented here. Lord, we pray that those homes, as we've heard this evening, would be loving homes, full of the love of the Lord Jesus, full of love for one another. We pray that husbands and wives would fulfill those beautiful God-given roles. We pray for parents, Lord, that you'd help them to meet all the challenges of parenting in the 21st century. Lord, we pray for our children that they would love growing up under the kind instruction and authority of their parents. Father, we pray for each of us in the world of work, whatever that work looks like. Lord, we pray that we would work with the Lord Jesus as our great audience, not working for the praise of man, but working to serve and exalt Christ in our life. So, Lord, be with us as we lay before you that we would become employers and employees who follow your good design for life. And, Father, we ask that our, our witness to this world, in whether it's at home or in at work or in a leisure or a social context, Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to guard and to keep our prayer life in check, to keep our behavior in check, and, Lord, that all that flows out of our mouths, Lord, would flow from the abundance of grace and goodness and love.
that is stored up in our hearts. And Father, we pray it that the outsider might come in. We pray that lives in the year ahead would be changed by Christ and that you would build your church here for the glory of your name. Amen.